BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Oh, hello. I'm very sorry. I know you're not here for me, but I just wanted to tell you about my new podcast. It's called Classical Fix, and it's basically me, Clemmy Burton-Hill, each week talking to a massive music fan. I mix them a classical playlist. They have a listen, they come in, and we just see where the conversation goes. If you'd like to give classical music a go, but you haven't got a clue where to start, this is where you start. Just go to BBC Sounds and search for Classical Fix to subscribe. Now then, as you were. Welcome to the Building a Library podcast from BBC Radio 3 with me, Andrew McGregor, presenter of Record Review. This time we're comparing recordings of that most regal of concertos, Beethoven's fifth and final piano concerto, known as The Emperor. Not the composer's nickname for it, but Beethoven wrote it for his pupil and patron, Archduke Rudolf, who gave the first performance in Vienna in 1811. The Archduke was also one of the 50 composers who wrote a waltz variation for Anton Diabelli, the project that inspired one of Beethoven's great piano works. Well, Beethoven's Emperor Concerto sits at the crossroads between the classical and romantic eras in music, and there are so many possibilities and challenges that any pianist, orchestra and conductor must address, as reviewer Nicholas Kenyon has been finding out as he compares contemporary recordings with classic accounts like this one, made 40 years ago. Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, the opening of his 1979 live performance conducted by Giulini. Imperious and hard-hitting, he takes that spurious nickname Emperor rather too literally, ignoring Beethoven's espressivo marks at the end of each flourish there. Here's a rather more classical, thoughtful approach from Rudolf Serkin.
Rudolf Serkin there with Leonard Bernstein in 1962, perhaps the best of his several recordings. The 19th century pianist Hans von Bülow said that when he played those opening flourishes, the audience always broke out in applause, an interesting sidelight on the performance practice of the time. And this is certainly an unprecedented way to start a piano concerto, as it were grabbing the listener by the throat. Other concertos by Mozart and Beethoven had allowed the pianist in early, but not with this same sense of the piano imposing itself and opening a massive dialogue between soloist and orchestra. Beethoven's Emperor is a climax of the classical era, but it also points forward to a whole new period of the piano concerto, which would become the story of the struggle of the individual romantic hero to overcome the power of the orchestra. Now, most soloists power dramatically through those cadenza-like passages as if they are totally unmeasured. But Beethoven was writing in great detail. He knew that because of increasing deafness, he wouldn't be able to perform this concerto himself. He specifies his semiquavers in groupings of threes, fives and seven, as if deliberately to make it uneven. The only pianist I've ever heard audibly attempt this is, not surprisingly, Glenn Gould, in his collaboration with the veteran Leopold Stokowski, and it sounds rather awkward like the rest of his rethought recording. Glenn Gould, individual as ever, with quite a lot of offstage noises too, with Stokowski. As the orchestra takes over, a firm tempo finally establishes itself. But what tempo? Here's another veteran. Eighty-two-year-old Otto Klemperer, recording the work in 1968 with the young Daniel Barenboim. 
At that tempo, 23 minutes of the first movement with four solid beats to the bar feels pretty heavy-handed to me. And it's noticeable that in both Barenboim's later self-directed performances as pianist, one with Berlin and one with Dresden, he moves it on more speedily though he was far more indulgent when conducting the work for a late performance by Arthur Rubinstein, allowing the pianist some leeway in the tricky bits. Few are quite as speedy as Kurt Zandling. Zanderling with the Czech Philharmonic, a live radio recording from 1958, with that first movement zipping along in under 18 minutes. Something of a surprise, I guess, for the soloist Emil Gillels, as all his other recordings are much more deliberate, and that leads to some bad flusters later on. That range in speed from 18 to 23 minutes reflects the outliers for this movement. It's a reflection of how taste has shifted, not in a linear fashion but much more subtly, that the fastest accounts are both very old and rather new. From one of the very first in 1927 by Wilhelm Backhaus with the Royal Albert Hall Orchestra under Landon Ronald and then in the 30s by Walter Gieseking with Bruno Walter. Those are by some way the fastest until we reach the historically informed accounts by Ronald Brautigan with Andrew Parrott and Melvin Tan with Roger Norrington. So the expansion in tempo comes in the middle period of recordings with their emphasis on great weight, legato lines and the impressive sonority which the technology of the LP helped to make possible. A recent recording at a moderate tempo that works is Ricardo Chailly's in 2014 with the Leipzig Gewandhaus. This pays attention to Beethoven's varied scorings of the theme, his quirky accents and precise markings, the rhythms alive and springy, letting us hear the active violas buzzing in the middle of the texture. And I love the way he balances the timpani prominently to propel the music across the bar lines.
Ricardo Chailly's soloist is that fine pianist Nelson Freer, who is noble but perhaps too elegant for this piece. There are several great players who just don't seem temperamentally suited to the uniqueness of this concerto, though they all recorded it often more than once. Neither the rhapsodic Vladimir Horowitz nor the sweet-toned Arthur Rubinstein were natural emperor pianists, and there are several more recent ones, often successful in the earlier Beethoven concertos, who feel too reserved here. I'm not saying everyone has to be as imperious an emperor as Michelangeli, but you do need the sort of seemingly effortless command that shines through the classic 1951 performance by Edwin Fischer with Furtwängler. Fisher entering the fray after the long orchestral introduction. That still commands the attention after 68 years. I'm having to exclude here a whole range of pre-war recordings, some of which have been reissued and finally remastered on the APR label, from Backhouse, Gieseking and Schnabel. These are fascinating documents of performance history. There's an account conducted by Mengelberg where he slows up at every dolce marking and allows his orchestra sliding portamenti. But these can't make a top choice for modern listening. For something in far better recorded sound and even more individual, here's Christian Zimmermann at the same point with Leonard Bernstein and the Vienna Philharmonic in 1993, with luminous piano textures making those rising dotted figures alert and questioning, as if we're not quite sure where they're leading. Christian Zimmermann. Bernstein is a responsive and energetic accompanist there, as he was back in 1962 for Rudolf Serkin. Far too many recordings settle into an automatic chug as the dialogue now emerges, whereas you want something that lifts off energetically. 
with inner energy and precision. It's a recent 2015 version by a pianist new to me, the Dutchman Hannes Mienaar, with the transparent Netherlands Symphony Orchestra under Jan Willem de Vriend. The piano is balanced quite far back as part of the ensemble, and from the start they create a sense of suppressed excitement in the orchestra, which then builds gradually. This development contains some fiendishly difficult writing for the soloist, and frustratingly for the player, the difficulties are not even very audible. You have to admire anyone who can get their fingers around the couple of weird bars of rising figuration for the left hand as syncopated octaves pile downwards in the treble, which I've rarely heard make total sense. But Claudio Arrow nails it towards the end of this example. Pianist as hero there in a classic Arrow performance with Alceo Galleria from 1958. Here the piano is at the front of the texture, every note crisp and clear. Maybe a little unrelenting, but among older performances, outstanding. Arrow went on to record the concerto several times with more sumptuous orchestral sound, but never quite as powerful as here. The traditional comparison is with Wilhelm Kempf, one of the most distinguished of emperor pianists, whose recordings go back to 1936 and the era of 78s. Most prefer his recording from 1962 with the Berlin Philharmonic conducted by Ferdinand Leitner. Kempf is brilliant and agile, lighter than Arrow in the same passage, and just a little bit more flexible in tempo. Thank you. 
Wilhelm Kempf with Ferdinand Leitner. We might expect the most recent competition in this concerto to be from newer period instrument groups. But that's a very tricky subject in this piece. The Emperor was written at a time when piano technology was moving on very fast. We know Beethoven was exploring new instruments and was taking advantage of the extension of his piano keyboard to a full six octave span. You can hear him in this concerto making the most of that delicate upper range. Period pianos have been revelatory in earlier concertos, but in this piece the instruments used, while providing occasional beauties of sonority and balance, just don't sound equal to the task. There is, however, one new exception which we'll come to in a moment. Instead, the present rivals to the big symphony orchestra versions come from smaller modern instrument chamber orchestras, often with pianists also directing, like the Mahler Chamber Orchestra with Leif over Ansnes, or the Royal Northern Symphonia with Lars Vogt. Then there's the very stimulating one by Pierre-Laurent Aymar, with Nicolas Arnencourt conducting the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. When we reach the central point of this movement, they pull an extraordinary trick, juddering the massive exchanges between piano and orchestra to a halt, as if daring the other to go on. Amar versus Harnencore. Now, that would be quite difficult for a pianist to achieve in a self-directed performance. Many pianists, including Claudio Arau, just power through those exchanges, but Minar with De Vriend achieve a real climax and a sense of onward direction. Minar. Among the best-known pianists of our time, Alfred Brendel, who has recorded the cycle at least four times, is unsurpassed at bringing a long-term sense of direction and impeccable gradations of phrasing to this vast movement. As he picks up at this central point in a live recording with James Levine and Chicago from 1988, there's an uncharacteristic blurring with the pedal, but then he shades the gradual evaporation of the piano line perfectly, though you can hardly hear the solo bassoon still chugging away in the background.
Alfred Brendel. When we reach the recapitulation there, led by the violas, who are so active throughout this movement, if you want the dominating voice of authority, then it is amply supplied by Maurizio Pollini, exploding with Claudio Abbado and the Vienna Philharmonic. Polini, a terrific sound there, but not very attractively shaped elsewhere. That's the dilemma of this concerto. Do you want that almost overbearing grandeur, which becomes pretty exhausting, or do you want a subtler blend of drama and beauty? One pianist who manages to make this next section sound almost graceful is Stephen Kovacevich in his fine recording of 1969 with Colin Davis and the London Symphony Orchestra, making those sandos at the top of Beethoven's piano pretty shrill. Stephen Kovacevich with Colin Davis and the LSO. I mentioned there was one period piano I wanted you to hear, and this is on a fascinating new recording by Nicholas Angelich with the Insular Period Instrument Orchestra under Laurence Equilbay. They use an instrument much later than Beethoven's time, from the 1890s, but it's by the French firm of Erard, from whom Beethoven had a piano he liked in 1802. Its pearly tone is nothing like a modern Steinway, and when the pianist reaches the written-out cadenza passage at the end of this movement, its chiming beauty resonates brightly. Thank you. 
Nicholas Angelich and the Insular Orchestra, an example of what you might call a semi-period piano that sheds light on the solo writing in this concerto, even if it doesn't work throughout. There is much more to be done here in exploring a plausible sound world for the solo instrument in The Emperor. But I must play you the same passage from quite one of the most eerie emperors on disc, a German radio recording by Walter Gieseking, made in Berlin in the autumn of 1944, where, if you listen very closely, the noises off in the quietest moments of that cadenza are actually anti-aircraft guns firing outside the hall. Walter Gieser King in 1944 with added artillery. How ironic is that when we know from Beethoven's letters that he was writing the concerto in Vienna as Napoleon was attacking the city, which fell in May 1809, the composer complaining of nothing but drums, cannons, men and misery of all sorts. The central movement, very short in comparison to the two imposing outer movements, is visionary and intense. It shows Beethoven pointing directly forward to the music of the 19th century. The key is a remote B major, but that means that the first melodic note, D sharp, is actually the same note as the E flat keynote of the preceding movement. Beethoven's pupil, Karl Czerny, who was one of the first to play this concerto and left detailed notes on it, said this melody was inspired by Pilgrim's religious hymns. It should express holy calm and devotion, but must not be dragging. Roger Norrington and the London Classical Players, with Melvin Tan as soloist. <laughs> 
That's at exactly the speed suggested by Cherney's metronome mark. Whether you believe those marks or not, it's the same tempo that Beethoven himself marked for the Adagio of the Ninth Symphony. But the marking here adds Adagio un poco moto, moving along. Not many classic versions flow like this, and far too many become totally becalmed before the piano even enters. A good middle way, with a song-like pace and not avoiding vibrato, is this from Zubin Mehta and the Israel Philharmonic, leading to Radu Lupu. Radu Lupu's very beautiful un-extrovert reading with Zubin Mehta. In this movement, the music favours these poetic pianists, notably Murray Pariah, quietly distinguished here with Bernard Heitink and the Concertgebouw. Murray Pariah, perfectly shaping a seemingly endless line and holding it aloft. 
Heitink has supported many great pianists in this concerto, including Brendel, Schiff and Arau, but this is surely the finest. There are challenges for the piano even in a supposedly simple passage like that. Beethoven indicates a sustaining pedal throughout each two-bar phrase, which would blur the melody line on a modern instrument. But if you don't sustain, you lose the first bass note in the piano, which totally disappears in most recordings. You can take it slower, as does Emil Gillels in 1958, but it requires a suspension of disbelief that it's humanly possible. Emil Gillels with Leopold Ludwig and the Philharmonia, setting his own terms in one of the longest central movements on disc. Another great pianist who seems able to cheat time in this movement is Clifford Curzon, an aristocratic interpreter who is arguably too reserved in the outer movements, but here he acquires the theme with Raphael Kubilek. Clifford Curzon, an uplifting moment in his 1977 recording with Raphael Kubelik and the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, but I'm not sure it still works for us today. 
A more naturally eloquent approach surely comes from Lars Vogt, both playing and directing his Royal Northern Symphonia. Vogt. Self-directing the orchestra seems to impose some caution here, but the music making is fresh and appealing. The transition from this middle movement to the finale is one of the most extraordinary moments in the concerto repertory. The piano sinks down into the bass register and then a single orchestral note just slips down from B to B flat preparing for a return to E-flat as the soloist ponders what might happen next. Some pianists like to tease us here, but Christian Zimmermann screws the tension up and seems again to be questioning, is it really worth going on? Zimmermann, superbly refined pianism. Of the newest younger pianists into the field, one who freshly reimagines the music here is Evgeny Sudbin, and when he reaches the finale, his conductor Osmo Vanska really knows what a Beethoven Sforzando is, catching the eccentric offbeat accents precisely.
Evgeny Sudbin and Osmo Vanska with the Minnesota Orchestra in 2010. That's among the liveliest symphony orchestra performances of recent years, alongside the very naturally flowing account from Paul Lewis and the BBC Symphony under Jerzy Belichlavek, and the richer one from Efim Bronfman and the Zurich Tonhalle with David Zinman. Both very fine, but maybe just lacking that extra spark of excitement and danger. This final movement is again fiendishly difficult to play, and there's often a certain degree of approximation going on. Among the classics, even Edwin Fischer for Fortwinkler tires slightly at this point, with just a couple of smudged passages to take the edge off his historic account. Claudio Arau is totally reliable, solid and sonically magnificent in his various versions. Alfred Brendel, in his last version from 1998 with Simon Rattle and the warm, full-toned Werner Philharmonic, is very clipped and precise as this movement begins, but then paces the second subject and Beethoven's ritardandos perfectly. Alfred Brendel. A pianist who really excels in this third movement is Stephen Kovacevic. Playing with Colin Davis and the LSO, he romps away here with sparkling tone and absolute precision, though not without some occasional noises off. Stephen Kovacevic with Colin Davis and the LSO in 1969. He later made a version with himself directing the Australian Chamber Orchestra, very lively but not in such great sound. 
So the difficult choice here is to find a pianist and orchestra who meet the very different challenges of the three movements of the Emperor Concerto and who speaks to our generation. I yearn for something humane, with playing that Cherney said should be as brilliant as possible with bravura and humour, fully exploiting the range of colours that Beethoven built into this extraordinary and sometimes eccentric piece. This is so much a matter of personal taste, so let me make three recommendations from three very different traditions for you to choose from. From the established old classics in the era of good sound, the choice must be between Rudolf Serkin, Wilhelm Kempf and Claudio Arau. The choice has to be Arau for his sheer musical command, heard at his liveliest in 1958 with Alceo Galliera and the Philharmonia. Claudio Arrow. Second, there is the later generation of pianists working with full symphony orchestras. Here the choice is surely between Alfred Brendel, Stephen Kabasevich, Murray Pariah and Christian Zimmermann. All are excellent, all worth hearing, but I find Zimmermann across the three movements the most original and stimulating. From the younger generation, mostly with chamber orchestra forces, there are two pianists I greatly admire, Leif over Athenes with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra and Lars Vogt with the Royal Northern Symphonia, but each here directing their own ensembles with a touch too much caution. There's a brand new set from Mitsuko Ushida and Berlin, which has recently been highly praised on this programme. It can't be long before Daniel Trifonoff records the concerto, and there will surely be more period piano explorations in the future. This will continue to be a concerto to which pianists aspire. So, Ara, Zimmermann, and who? Well, I'm going to throw caution to the winds here and suggest that for my most recent choice, for anyone who wants to hear this concerto in an interpretation of today, you take a risk. Whether you're new to this piece or if you've already collected a couple of versions, try the Dutch partnership of Hannes Minar and Jan Willem van Vried. This has passion, drama, vital rhythms, transparency, and more important, a total fusion between soloist and orchestra. It's less a competition for power than a celebration of unity, with pianist and orchestra continually sparking off each other. They here come up with something powerful but not over-romanticised, summed up in the ambiguous conclusion as the pulsation of a single drum beating away behind the soloist evaporates and is suddenly swept away by a torrent of upward scales. The future begins.
Back to the Future, in the final bars of Beethoven's Emperor Concerto, his piano concerto number five in E-flat, at least in that recording from pianist Hannes Minna with the Netherlands Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Jan Willem de Vriend, one of the most recent recordings reviewed by Nicholas Kenyon, and in the final analysis, his favourite, very much a risk worth taking. You'll find the Dutch team's Emperor Concerto on Challenge Classics. Full details are on the Record Review website, alongside some of Nick's other favourites. You've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library from BBC Sounds. Next time, as BBC Radio 3 marks Hector Berlioz's 150th anniversary, we have a special edition of Building a Library, for which Jeremy Sams joins me to discuss his favourite recordings of five of Berlioz's greatest works, from the Symphonie Fantastique to his opera The Trojans. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, on FM, online and on BBC Sounds, where you can discover much more music, radio and podcasts like this one. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.